Alright guys, hope you guys enjoy the songs. Um, this is Minsky's Mainstream Media, and before we introduce our special guest tonight, let me first give a special shout out to our partners, our sponsors. Prime Deli, the Prime Deli and Cafe takes pride in making their products fresh daily from only the finest and freshest ingredients. Their delicious homemade soups and daily specials are made from scratch with no additives or preservatives. Their quality and service remain at high standards while their price remains extremely reasonable. Please remember, any order may be customized to suit your needs. Just give them a call at 781-893-4344. And Chillbox. Chillbox Greek frozen yogurt is a fresh, modern concept highlighting the natural goodness that Greek yogurt has to offer. Their unique and healthy frozen yogurt is specially crafted from 100% authentic Greek yogurt and non-GMO low-fat milk, making it the healthy alternative. Along with their signature frozen yogurt, they also carry a variety of artisan ice creams, European coffee, smoothies, and cold beverages sure to satisfy any craving. Visit them in Waltham or call 781-499-5380. So now that we got that out of the way, um, let's get to it. Um, so tonight we have uh, two special guests from um, an organization called Stories in Science, and I'll let them introduce them. We have Fanuel and we have Jessica. So do you guys want to talk a little yeah. bit? Yeah. Hi, Aaron. So it's um, an honor to be here. Thanks for the invite. Um, as Aaron said, my name is Fanuel Mwindi. Um, so by day, I have, to have two, two separate jobs. By day, I work at Harvard, um, assistant director of graduate studies there in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Biology. And then at night, my, my night face comes on, and I, 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 uh, I'm a co-director and a co-founder of um, the STEM Advocacy Institute. And this is where the Stories in Science project, um, which we'll talk about today, that's where um, we, we do the work on. So, I'm Jess Tsai. By day, um, I'm actually a pediatric hematology oncology stem cell transplant fellow at Dana-Farber and uh, Boston Children's Hospital. So I take care of kids with cancer and blood disorders and who need stem cell transplants. And then on the weekends and when I have time off, I'm the co-director with Fanuel of um, the STEM Advocacy Institute. And we actually met each other when we did our PhDs in grad school That's out right. in California at Stanford. Way back when. Way back when <laughs> a long time ago. Um, and work on a number of projects within the Institute, including Stories in Science, which I'm sure we'll talk about tonight, um, and a bunch of other projects really looking at how we can help science education in here in the developing world. That's right. Sounds good. So it seems like science is the combining mutual factor that you guys share. Um, so I guess before we get into Stories in Science, just talk to me a little bit about your background, how you got here. Uh, I know you mentioned um, California, Stanford, so... How did you yeah. fall in love with science? Because I know it's not forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was actually born in Tanzania um, and way back when and um, went to boarding school in the UK and then came to the US um, uh, to Morehouse College. Um, and that's where really I, from the early days in Tanzania, and, and Jess and I started talking about this is how story in science actually started, mm-hmm. um, talking just about our paths in science. And so started in Tanzania. I, went, I, actually, I actually wanted to be a pilot way back when. That didn't quite work out, and then stumbled onto plant biology in boarding school, and then didn't quite like that too much, and <laughs> stumbled onto neuroscience in, in college. And I've been there so ever since. And so at Morehouse, I really fell into uh, neuroscience, um, and then packed my bags, then left, went to Stanford, and kept on in the neuroscience field, um, and, and finished my PhD there after five, five and a half six years 
um, and again, passionate about you know neuroscience. I really thought I wanted to become a scientist, you know, mm. run a lab somewhere. So I went did a postdoc at MIT for a while, three years, and then <clears throat> things changed along the way, and I just started falling in love more on the questions about science or the meta science, you know, the science of science, and 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 that's where these feelings of hey, I wanna, how can I take my training, you know, my hardcore training in neuroscience and use it to sort of examine a new entity, science, that is, in this case. Um, and, and so I jumped ship and I started thinking about science from a really meta level. And so I, I started working at Harvard and co-founded the Institute really to address these questions on the science, education, um, really big problems, which I hope we can dig into a little bit later. But but yeah, and the love of science never left. I, it's still there now. Um, I'm not at the bench anymore, but I think about science all day long. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I did not grow up in Tanzania. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in the Bay Area in sure? California. <laughs> and um, both of my parents were sort of like Silicon Valley engineers. So I was just like always surrounded by engineering. And I think Fanny has heard this story before, but I think the first time that I was really interested in science was in fourth grade when, I don't know, Aaron, if you guys did this in fourth grade, but we dissected earthworms, and all my, my lab partner, he was super grossed out and didn't want to do anything, and I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> like, you can open this earthworm up and identify all the different parts that you're supposed to identify, and all of these things actually, like, make this earthworm do what it's supposed to do. Um, you know, I went through a lot of phases where I thought I wanted to be a basketball player, an astronaut, a marine biologist, and then just got super fascinated with the brain. Um, I studied neurobiology in college at Stanford, and then I stayed for medical school, and I also did a PhD in neuroscience, which is when I met Fanuel. But I've sort of fused this really intense love of science, and I think at the really core of it is asking questions and learning how to ask questions and how to test those questions, which just ends up resulting in more questions, which is even (laughs) more fun, um, and getting your hands wet. But for me, it's also sort of the clinical part is I'm very interested in kids with brain tumors and how how does the science feed into taking care of these kids and how when I see these kids day to day in the hospital and in the clinic, how does that feed back into sort of motivating the science that I do? Um, And I think a lot of the interest in science too is driven around sort of aspects in graduate school and now that I'm sort of in fellowship and doing more postdoctoral research on what are sort of issues within the scientific pipeline that could certainly be better and improved um, so that people have a better experience. Um, so I think that's a lot of what Fanuel and I have been trying to work on too. That's all great. Um, I don't know, it's just amazing that once you like find your passion that you've kind of stuck with it and because I know not not everyone kind of has that you know they have those rocky starts and all but um, let's talk a little bit about stories in science um, so I guess yeah. talk a little bit what it is how it started uh, and all that good stuff so yeah Jess do you want to take this one yeah how did we get started how did we get started <laughs> honestly it was it was starting with a lot of conversations about why did we want to do this in the first yeah. place? You know, I think, like you said, Aaron, you go through these ups and downs, and when you're down, you're like, man, why am I doing this? This right. is really hard. This is really frustrating. People are frustrating. And I think it started with a reflection on when was what you asked us, when was the first time you were interested in this? And sort of going back to that time where you were kind of very innocent, really like wide-eyed and amazed, and thinking, wow, 
I do still feel that sometimes, sort of reflecting on that. So I feel like that's where initially stories and science started. And we found that everyone sort of had similar stories, and it didn't even have to necessarily be within science, about being frustrated, being really happy, being really excited, having a failure. And um, everyone has these stories, but not everyone shares them. So we found that in talking to people, you know, if you talk to someone in your random class next to you who's super frustrated, you're like, wow, I have that exact same experience. And they're like, I had no idea. And so we sort of wanted to start collecting stories from other people and share them in a forum where people all over the world could look at them online and say, wow, someone's really sharing this experience with me and I could connect with them even though I've never met them. Um, And we've gotten stories from like kids, you know, Fannie Will and I when we were in grad school to people who are like full academic professors to people who are in industry, you know, people all over the world. So I think it's that sense of building community and letting people know that they're not alone um, in their journey and that there are lessons to be learned yeah. um, is sort of like the core of where this all came from. And as, and as Jess said, you know, it began with a conversation uh, that literally we were having. Um, just chatting. On, <laughs> just chatting. And this was on, a, I still remember it, on a Google, Google thanks to Google Docs, by the way. Shout out to them. Yeah. But, <laughs> shout out to them. <laughs> the best thing ever, Thank right? Thank you, Google Docs. We didn't have Tracking. It, we didn't have it in college. <laughs> but... Um, but th- we just started talking about you know the experiences in science, and we started writing at the same time. So she would say, "Write something." I would write something back. It was a conversation, uh, literally on there, and we just kept going at it. And suddenly, we had pages and pages, right? Yeah. And pages have kept building, and we're like, "Whoa, there's something here." And this first chapter was done. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, "Whoa, this is like maybe a book." But in that conversation, we were just asking ourselves very basic questions. Well, how did you get into interested in science? You know, who who inspired you? What were those initial uh, stories? You know, me becoming wanting to become a pilot, just learning about your early days as well. <coughs> and then we realized we want to get more stories, as Jess said, and we collected a few stories, made a new chapter, and suddenly, I think after like two years, right? We had a book. We had a whole book, <laughs> and in there, we had collected a few stories. But we realized actually this is, we need to be collecting more of these stories. We need to um, essentially humanize, and this is really the mission of, uh, of, of this project, is humanizing science. It is that humanity that I think uh, is missing in science. It's done purposely in training, but it is that element, the, nature, the anthropological nature of science, I call it, anthropological nature of science, that we need to capture, understand, and then the questions come, how can we use it? You know, can we use this to, for educational purposes? Can, like, can this be useful for science teachers, right? This knowledge base, because you don't learn the story, right. the human story <clears throat> behind the science. You don't learn in the classroom, but we're, we're asking, could we provide a new, some data source for, for teachers and so forth? So yeah, it, it just started very organically. That's, that's great. That's so cool that it just started on the Google yeah. Doc because, I mean, personally for me, I've never used Google Doc in that form. And I don't know if a lot of people have, but it's really neat that, um, I guess, at the time, like a more recent technology kind of helped you guys yeah. advance this yeah, opportunity. Yeah. Um, so what else was in the book besides a couple of the stories? And kind of was it just answering and talking about these meta science questions or was there something else to it? Yeah. So the book was structured in sort of, I guess we could call it a developmentally appropriate way, where the first chapter is sort of about who we are, how we grew up, 
uh, like experiences that we talked about, like Fanuel wanting to be a pilot and myself being obsessed with this earthworm. So those like really early experiences. And then I think we go through sort of middle school and high school in the next chapter on how was your education on science? Like how were you taught science? Most of the time we're taught to memorize facts and then regurgitate them, right? Yeah. Versus in college you, you come to the realization that oh, maybe I can't just regurgitate those facts. There's more to learning than that. And then if you join a lab, then you realize, oh, there's a lot of stuff that's really made up or you're asking new questions that no one's ever asked before and doing experiments that no one's ever done before Um, and how we felt that parts of the components of science education, at least in the U.S., are not necessarily the best preparation for you know, going forward in a career in science or even just in life and being able to answer questions and ask questions. Um, and then we talk a lot about grad school and what that is like. A lot about grad school. <laughs> a lot about grad school, which is really just like a, a very large lesson in f- repeated failure <laughs> and occasional success and how you build resilience and how you don't let yourself get bogged down and what it means to have a community of other people around you who are going through a similar thing. And then we did spend some time, so that's sort of like, you know, growing up. And then we spent some time talking about what does science look like in the developing world? Like in low resource settings where there may not be a full academic structure like there is in the United States. There's not like a pipeline really for science. If you could start from scratch, knowing the context of a particular community, which is certainly different from country to country, if not from village to village, like how would you teach science? That's like a super interesting question to us. Um, And then we sort of talk a lot, I think, at the end of the book more about what are our next steps? What does the future look like? It looks super exciting, and there's all these cool things that we could do. Um, So that's sort of the structure of the book and what we talked about in addition to the stories. And throughout the whole book, we are talking to each other, right? So we ask sort of It's written in a conversation. It's a conversation the entire way. Oh, it's neat. And so we're talking to each other, asking questions, and then we also disagree along the way, too. So it's not like she would agree. It's like, what do you think about this? And actually, in that book, and this is a... We're talking so much about the book or something, but um, in that book, this is how actually stories in science, you can actually see stories in science come to life in, in words, which, which I think is kind of cool because yeah. at some point we say, we should totally do this. We should get people to tell their stories. Yeah, like, like, <laughs> and then it's like done. Like I literally wow. wrote done somewhere. I, I think if I go and search somewhere. <laughs> you can probably see um, the track changes, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I think that energy is still, is still there. And, and now as we, so we, we just passed 106 stories and we, we're now just asking the next sort of questions, right? We're building this big database. How can we use this database, right, to, to engage students, right, across the entire pipeline? Could these, these stories, for this project, can these stories be used in a way that is uh, constructive, right, in the classroom? Um, and you can even ask more bold questions, right, provocative. Can these stories go in places that uh, are hard to get to, right, mm-hmm. um, places where if you think about uh, like low resource settings or places in Africa or low uh, socioeconomic um, countries, how can these stories, you know, how can students get access to these stories? They're online, right? That's, that's hard. So if yeah. there's no internet, guess what? They can't read it, right? So then how can they get access to these stories and how can they, the stories impact them? So these are questions mm-hmm. that now we just love entertaining. Right, we're in a position where we can do that, and collaborating with people, people who are in podcasts, being in a radio show like this is great because you know, radio. In fact, radio is a really fundamental uh, kind of medium which still can you know, cross the ways. You can get mm-hmm. to masses number of people, 
And so we've been exploring ideas like that. Could we get our stories on the air somehow? You know, somehow, I don't know. <laughs> we can get people just to like verbally say their stories to each other yeah. in like a, you know, a forum where, oh, yeah. we meet, you know, every month to tell stories. Yeah, so stories. So, we, yeah, we're cool just entertaining stories. all these questions. And I think mm-hmm. that's where, as Jess said earlier, the questions really matter. So now yeah. we're just asking them. Um, so that kind of perfectly leads into my next question. What is the hardest question that you face so far? Is there one? Um, in, in which context? Do you mean? <laughs> in regards to science. Oh, uh, okay. Mm. Hardest question. I think it goes to, for me at least, it goes to the heart of what we are trying to do in the Institute, so SAI, STEM Advocacy Institute, this question of, of access, um, universal access right, to science and, and education. And kind of that's kind of what drives me. In in the book, actually, we do talk about this access being a fundamental thing, and you need to look at to look around. And access is the problem. You like if you're uh, if you're not like if you're born in a um, wrong family or you don't have access to some resources, you can't get um, into the schools. Right, access to teachers, right, um, and suddenly your path is very different uh, to someone else. So the hardest problems that we are still grappling with is how do we sort of n- normalize that, you know, make that access equal so that everybody around the world can have access to that information, to science, to education, so that that young kid, you know, in a, and this is a plug into my wife who always challenges me on this question mm-hmm. is how, you know, how are you helping that young kid in Tanzania, my home country, uh, go to school, get that scientific education, mm-hmm. right, and, and then have better odds, right, at succeeding. And that's what I think a lot about, and that that absolutely keeps me going, thinking about that question, access and equality. Yeah. So. I think for me it's on similar lines is this idea of, like, how do you how do you enhance diversity of thought in science? And that doesn't mean just, like, you know, more women in science, but in all in all aspects. Yeah. yeah. And, ha- and, and that really is, like, really parallel to what Fanuel is saying about access to education. Um, because I think we're missing like really critical new thinkers who come from different backgrounds, who've had totally different experiences in life and family, whatever they've done, who live in totally different places, who could provide totally new avenues of thought to science, but they're not part of that conversation right now for many reasons, many of which are like they don't have housing or they don't have access to clean water, right? There's all these other they can't sort go of, to school. If you, like, they can't go to yeah. school, they have to help on whatever, their parents at home. There's all of these sort of like underlying things that are preventing them from doing it, but having those voices at the table eventually is sort of one of the goals that I think our institute has and both of us want. And I think the question is how to do that, and that's really hard, and it's super context-dependent on where you are. Um, If it was easy, it would have been fixed already, so it's a fun question, but I think (laughs) that is what really (laughs) kind of drives me. So then what do you think the United States could be doing better in regards to science and teaching? Because I agree, you know, growing up, elementary, middle, high school, it's a lot of facts and just regurgitating the information, but, you know, end of high school, college, you really realize, at least for me, that, you know, there's more to it than just <laughs> memorizing a, pa- a piece of paper with a bunch of information. Um, so what do you think the United States needs to be doing in regards to science specific? Because I know it kind of varies along the industries. Yeah, I think there's, there's, 
There's a lot. It's a big question, right? There's really so many, question. so many pieces, and uh, I'm not going to profess yeah. to know exactly what the U.S. should be doing. Um, but I think it's, <coughs> it's a little things, you know, investing in teachers. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a big one, um, and I think this goes around the world too. Um, invest in teachers. You you're investing ultimately in the kids, right? So, um, in, inspiring more of the young people to go into the teaching profession. I I I focus on teachers because I think that's where at the core of it. If you if you have those people in the right places that uh, have the training, they're paid appropriately. Um, you would be they, that energy and passion. They could f- spend more time in terms of educating the students and imparting the knowledge, right? Um, but but yeah, these things and then when you think about teachers and exactly what they're teaching and how they're teaching, then those questions come up um, yeah. in terms of, as you said earlier, uh, regurgitation and so forth is not the point. And a lot of our students, undergrads who start doing research, they realize actually getting the right answer or like, what is the what is the problem? Tell me what the problem is. Tell me what the problem is. I'm like, no, 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 no. no. Uh, you, sh- you tell me what the problem is. <laughs> I don't know. And, and that is a shift, frame shift there that takes place. In grad school, absolutely. You tell me the problem. I'm not going to tell you what the, what the pro- what problem to work on. And so it goes back early days, investing in teachers, I, I think, in my opinion, is something that um, will go a long way um, uh, in education. Yeah, I certainly think, you know, we've talked a lot about this too, is teacher investment, but I also think one of the other things is sort of resource investment. And I yeah. think one of the... Again, if this were easily fixed, it would have been fixed already. <laughs> but I think like hands-on, like fun, yeah. like wet lab, getting your hands dirty as a child is like one of the most fun things and gets kids the most excited as opposed to like, you know, memorizing the different parts of a plant or something. You know, something like that <laughs> is not as fun. I think there are ways to learn the parts of a plant that doesn't require necessarily reading a book about it that maybe you look at a plant or you manipulate a plant. That's just like a very simple example. But that requires things like, you know, if they're gonna do experiments, having like the right equipment, right? Having safety equipment, which not every school has, or having like flasks or Bunsen burner, you know, all of these like sort of we take it for granted, resources right? that yeah. we take for granted yeah, that, that yeah, you yeah. actually would need in order to do interactive science where kids can actually like manipulate variables and ask questions. I think the big thing that we have talked about before is also like using science as a medium for allowing kids to fail in sort of a protected environment, if that makes sense, where like you can fail and mess up an experiment and you're not going to be punished or get a bad grade, right? This is sort of like, that's what science is, right? We fail 99% of the time and like 1% we get really lucky and we get something cool. Um, But learning that early too, I think, starts to build like resilient skills that, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean, we don't want everyone necessarily to be a scientist, it would be awesome. No, no, But we think that like science itself can teach you lessons that apply to everything. It's a vehicle, right? Yeah, it's it's like a, it's a vehicle to learning all those skills. And and I think back to the access thing, it's access to that vehicle, Mm -hmm. right? That then they can use to drive wherever they want, right? And so access to ideas, thoughts, as you said, classroom, and uh, to new types of training, and it goes back to the teachers, right? Can you provide more access to teachers, to resources, to, yeah, for me, all roads lead back to access. And I think also <laughs> seeing people who do different things. Like if you grow yeah. up in a community where everyone is a teacher and you've never met a scientist before, well, how would you know that you could even be a scientist? And so having exposure like to these things as a kid in school is difficult, but I think is important. 
It's all great stuff. Um, so let's, I guess, we are a little closer back to stories and science. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, talk to me about how you find the stories. Is there maybe a vetting process? Do you accept all of them? Where are they from? Who are they from? Yeah, so so 106, as I said earlier, and and the stories come from really around the world. So we we have the map. You saw the map. map. (laughs) Glad you like the map. And uh, our goal was also trying to get like a story from each country, which Mm -hmm. would be kind of cool. Working on it. But really, it's just broad based. So we're on Twitter, we're on every social media you can think about. Spam friends. Uh, (laughs) Stories and science. and, and the goal there, so we try to basically ask a vast array of people, and they sometimes just find us organically. At times, I send lots of emails to people <laughs> and bug them multiple times yeah. to say, please write a story, uh, share your narrative in science. And, and we're finding out it's actually really hard. It's it's not that easy, and you think oh to people get the stories. to get the stories, yeah, people or, or no, to even write the stories. I think I'm there's a lot of there's a fear maybe there's yeah. uh, you know getting the ideas down on paper in a structured way. So we provide a lot of guidance, of course, on the site as a whole structure manual, uh, you know guide. But still, I think it's still pretty difficult. So equally, <laughs> a lot of women that are sharing the stories, a lot of women, which is which is fantastic to to see around the world, and in the process again they. Are they submit, we work with them. We try not to do too much editing because mm-hmm. we want to contain their voice. Um, and then we publish it really um, right right thereafter as soon as we're happy with it. So yeah, it's, um, it's been fun so far, but we keep, we really are actively looking for stories all the time. Yeah, and I think a lot, it's interesting the, the like huge activation energy needed yeah. to write the story, but yeah. I would say universally, when people have actually written it and they see it on the website, they say, wow, I'm really glad I did that. Like that was, I didn't want to do it necessarily to begin with, or there was like a lot of struggle that went into thinking about it. But I think it forces people to think about, hmm, maybe something that was sort of unpleasant or something that I've been thinking about for a long time but haven't been able to really grapple with. I finally was able to put on paper. The humanity. The humanity, (laughs) yeah. And then the editing is done by me, Fanuel, and then we have someone else on our team, um, also named Jessica, who uh, (laughs) does a fair bit of editing for us, too. And... um, you know, we don't necessarily accept all of them. Most of no, them we do. No. So we, we work really hard with authors that, hey, um, make suggestions, you know, along the way. And mm. if they can make some edits and so forth, um, we most likely high acceptance rate, of course. Yeah. Uh, but if, if someone comes in and writes a really just, you know, an attack on on someone, <laughs> we <laughs> kind of kind of have a filtration system to make sure we don't get random things right. on there. And, and personal attacks, I think, is not the way to go. That's smart. So, so yeah. What's uh, the timeline from contacting a teacher in Chicago to posting it on your website? Um, so this thing is pretty, f- yeah, contacting and then it's really about on them in terms of writing the story, finding the time to write the story. Some people, it, it can vary. It could be like a couple of days, someone writes something really fast because the average length is about 1,000 words mm-hmm. also. Uh, we've had as long as like 2,000 too, mm-hmm. and as short as even like 600 yeah. or something like that. It really depends on what they want to write about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but but at times, we may email someone and they'll say they're working on it <laughs> and, they're, and they're working on it <laughs> and they're still working on it six months later uh, but it's okay we are very patient you know we I, I, I tell Jessica this we are on a 100 200 year journey we may not get there but <laughs> I hope that uh, we'll continue amassing to like a thousand two thousand yeah. stories or whatever I mean why not right why why 
why not? And so, yeah, the timeline varies quite a bit. Mm -hmm. We try to turn them, we edit them pretty, you know, I think part of it is from our own experience submitting papers <laughs> for scientific journals is right. Tough. we want to do the courtesy to the authors of turning things around and giving really, like we spend really extensive time giving really good feedback and sort of track changing all the edits and giving comments to people so that they feel like they're getting something out of the editing process too because that's important to us. And then we'll edit as many times as need be, as yeah. long as the other the author is willing to continue working with us. We don't mind editing, but yeah. we try to really turn the edits around as quickly as possible because yeah. we know that people don't like to wait. Yeah, the turnaround is much faster. It's really yeah. fast, yeah. Really, really fast. Um, that's so. good. That's important. Um, so what, do you have a few favorite stories? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Jess, I'll let you, yeah. <laughs> I, there's, and I can't remember her name, but she was basically living, this woman was living on a boat and she was in the was it in the Arctic or in Antarctica? Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah, she yeah. was like a researcher on this boat. I think it was an, in Antarctica. Yeah, I think they took a journey from I think Germany. Yeah, and she was basically out. doing yeah. research and yeah. living yeah. on this boat for months. And her story was just so cool about how she's Stephanie, living on this Stephanie. boat. Yeah, I think it's Stephanie. And <laughs> she's like in this cold, dark environment. <laughs> um, it was just so different. It's like. How would I have ever met this person in real life? I right. wouldn't unless it was through these stories yeah. and talking mm -hmm. about how it was hard being isolated from people and not being around people and trying to remember why she was motivated to do what she was doing. It was just a super cool story. Yeah. And, there, and I mean, there's so many. Uh, there's one for my, actually, my uh, undergraduate uh, thesis advisor. Okay. So, uh, the so the, the title is The Inner City Scientist, uh, so by Katima Paul. And just in that story, it talks about his own upbringing and, you know, um, just his growth and how he ended up being becoming a full, full, full professor at UCLA, you know, from 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 the streets in a way. Uh, to other stories, uh, uh, Robert Sapolsky. Oh yeah, that's a great right? story. Um, uh, the the lab coat story. He was one of the earliest writers, so he's a full professor at Stanford, uh, world renowned primatologist, and he writes his you know journey into science. Um, to Steve Ramirez, who was over at uh, BU now, a uh, neuroscientist. I mean, as you see a pattern, it's just these stories and each one, you know, finding the common thread that unites them all, the humanity. I think that's the core, the humanity that unites them all. Yeah. And getting to the, like how, what questions are for scientists? What questions are you asking? How did you get there? You know, and, and what kind of question are you asking and how, how did you develop it? What struggles, yep. struggles, really, really huge. Uh, did you did you stumble on and then how did that change your thinking for any given type of problem? And I feel like it is those elements that if we can somehow find a way and this we don't know how to do yet. You know, a lot of things we're trying to figure out. If and and today I was just happily talking to an advisor about talking basically talk to science teachers and figure out how to use these stories in the classroom. You know, uh, but how do you then take those elements and engage students? Right. And, that, that's and, kind of the the ideal goal. It will be one, one yeah, of them, one right? In, in, in a way that, because uh, there's, there's value there, right? Yeah. You can then take them and then put them in places that students will never see these kind of stories, right? Now, of course, you need the internet, which is a big problem. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of places that need these stories don't have internet. Yeah. <laughs> a waste of access. Uh, yeah, exactly. Access to the internet. So then, but then that's a problem that we got to figure out how yeah. to. You know, go around, and so the project will evolve and grow, right? And we just, you know, along the way, on the ride, and and uh, yeah, it's just been exciting. Um, yeah, 
There's another cool story from a friend of mine who was a geologist oh, yeah. uh, in college, and then um, he actually was an Olympic rower, and oh. he talks a lot about how yeah. he did all these cool... Um, for research, he would like go out and do these sort of geology excursions where you're in the middle of the nowhere and you're sort of by yourself or you're with one other person, and how that has sort of translated into sports for him, um, which I thought was like super cool. Um, but yeah. I think a lot of it is too is like how do we apply these stories and bring them into the classroom? And I think another idea has been, mm-hmm. well, I guess kids could write their own story. You know, like they could write their own stories in the yeah. classroom. Yeah, yeah. And might have super cool stories too. Yeah. Um, and how to even analyze them. So we have this tool on the site whereby people can annotate things. So you read the story, you can leave questions for other people, mm-hmm. for the author yeah. as well. And so you can imagine. So we do these things in, in grad school, like journal clubs. You add a research paper and you sort of read it and you present it and you dissect it and critique the paper. Can I imagine a similar thing where you can have this story? And you teach students, right, to go into the content and say, okay, let's analyze the story and what lessons can we extract from this uh, pathway uh, this person has gone to. And I imagine even one day when the author shows up <laughs> yeah. in the classroom <laughs> and says, here I am, talk to me, you know, I wrote that. Let me tell you what I was thinking when I wrote that, right? Yeah. Then you go into this kind of programming like Skype a scientist, you know, where people are Skyping one time in the classroom, but imagine then the, the students have read a story and now like I want to ask you about this yeah because I read your story like I want to tell you I want to ask you like why why are you asking why you know why are you working on this problem and how did you get there and you know it's 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 kind of cool I do want to say about one story as well um is this story by Marguerite Matthews she she used to be a triple A's fellow so how to be a superstar with no instruction so the title (laughs) the titles I I challenge the authors to please write really captivating titles titles. (laughs) that's important Uh, so how to be a superstar with no instruction fascinating story check it out that's great um are there other organizations who are doing similar things or are you guys the first and the only right now <laughs> i'm glad we're not the only ones <laughs> uh, we are so happy to be in a family of other initiatives out there uh from podcasting so in fact we have one team member that joined us uh, prasha sarwate and she 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 works on a podcast called her stem story so mm-hmm. it's exclusively women but it's a podcast in this way so right cool. uh to another one people behind the podcast and they're probably the largest let's say they she, she yeah. <laughs> the host <laughs> she she hosts uh, she has about i think 400 or so 450 episodes and she interviews scientists around the world uh, various <coughs> domains so we're not alone and there are a lot of initiatives and Twitter by the way Twitter yeah. thanks to Twitter uh, there's big communities out there hashtag SciComm hashtag Stories in Science who are doing some phenomenal work you know and I think we've just been blessed to be part of that and to when you have so many people like this it forces you to innovate and to work together as well to think of how can we then move forward uh, but in terms of written text, I think we're now becoming sort of, we, we're becoming, we're trying to find our own voice in the midst yeah. of all this. We, we, we are not focused on podcasting. We mm-hmm. are purely written text because we feel like that can then be analyzed. Right. Um, you know, text mining, you know, you can do all those different things on there. Uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, yeah. We've participated in some cool Twitter chats with some yeah, other organizations, yeah, and it's, yeah. I think it's just interesting to bounce ideas off yeah. other people and oh, this is cool, how can we collaborate on this? Yeah. But you're right, yeah. Our, our focus is mainly, in addition to stories and science, been 
a lot of written analysis pieces that yeah. we've done yeah. that yeah. I think, um, yeah. you know, I think have been pretty well received. Yeah, at the level of the institute. So this is one project, right? Uh, the the journal of stories of science, and then we do do research. Um, otherwise, advocacy pieces, um, advocacy related research to really think about these questions I told you about earlier, the, the, the access, you know, uh, meta-science, um, how, how, what are these issues of um, um, open science, for example, right, which we, a lot of organizations that are, that are working on, we try to be also be a hub for people to come and give talks, so we host, we're trying to host talks now, having organizations come in and we engage them on well, the problems that they're working on, because it's a really big problem and we're not professing to solve it all. <laughs> uh, on our website, we have a map like a global map of the problem. I mean, like <laughs> there are a lot of these connections that we just don't understand. Yeah. You know, the connections. And I feel like once you understand the network and the connections that exist, maybe you can begin to... Dent a little bit. Yeah, you can begin <laughs> to do like, okay, let's now test it. Let's move this, this direction and see what happens to the network. Can we increase access to that kid in Tanzania yeah. by pushing this lever over here, right? Uh, maybe funding in this area can equate to that. That's kind of the goal and drive and vision. <laughs> That's cool. No, it's nice how I feel like, especially with this type of project, you guys, even if there was another organization that did, you know, very similar things to you, yeah, you guys all have the same goal in mind. Yeah, and exactly. I feel like, unlike you know, in the private and public sector in regards to businesses, like there's there's not there's not a lot of yeah, competitive. Like, yeah, there's no <laughs> competition. Um, so you mentioned Twitter and Google as, as two companies that um, you guys kind of use to your advantage and help with your projects in various ways. Are there ways that you see other tech companies like I don't know, Netflix and Amazon and Facebook helping you with this stories in science? That's an interesting question. Mm. Yeah, Netflix. Netflix. Never thought, I never know. thought about Netflix, <laughs> but that's an intriguing so idea. Documentary I, or something. Yeah, documentaries. Um, Try to think what and other we use Facebook sometimes. Yeah, Facebook sometimes. Um, yeah, I'm but I'm sure there are ways to use them. Yeah, and in fact, yeah, if those people are intrigued, <laughs> they should just contact us. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, scholarship at stemadvocacy.org. <laughs> I mean, they can certainly tell their stories, right? Yeah. Which I think would be interesting. Yeah, they can tell their stories, uh, but I think you goes to the point. Uh, I want to do us a shout out to to Google Ad Grants because they have a granting agency there, and uh, for nonprofits, they do support us, you know, um, and I think that's it's important, right? Organizations who can take time and uh, to provide funding, um, to to provide any other sort of help along yeah. the way, right? Uh, in terms of broadening access, getting our voice out. Yeah. Twitter has been fantastic. They're really um, good. Facebook. Awesome. Instagram. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So where do you kind of see Stories and Science going in the next few years? Five, I, I mean, I don't know exactly what you're playing with yeah. it. Is, is it kind of a short-term project or is it something you want to do for a long time? And if so, then what are the varying goals that you have along the way? I think we want to see it just keep going. We don't have any sort of endpoint in sight. We just want to keep getting more and more stories and amassing more and more stories. And sort of like the immediate is just putting them on the website and having all of these sort of annotated stories, right? You could say, I want to hear a story from, you know, someone in whatever, Antarctica, and there's like, you click on it, it's like two. Yeah. You know, that, that yeah. would be cool to start looking at the network of stories. 
you know, I think we've talked about creating a community amongst the storytellers where they could communicate with each other. Could you have like a yearly stories and science summit where people come together who've told stories and they could do oral storytelling, um, which would be cool. Um, you know, we've already touched a lot about how to incorporate these stories into schools um, and yeah, maybe that's, that's even start idea. having people, you know, sort of travel even locally to tell like if Fanuel and I just, you know, went to a couple places and told our stories, you know, what would that be like? Yeah. We've toyed with the idea of even having exhibits at different yeah. science museums, which <laughs> we were just not? talking about in the car right over here, um, which it sounds like some places are actually kind of interested in doing, um, which would be really cool. So I think it's like there's no limit to it, and we don't have an endpoint. We just want to keep seeing more stories and more people kind of positively impacted by them. And we want ideas to... So this repository will be there. So the core the database will mm -hmm. be there. We'll keep building it, put stories in there. And then I think engaging science teachers, engaging, engaging other entities yeah. that then can look and say, hey, you have a wonderful database there. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a science historian and would love to use your database to do X, Y, Z, right? I see that possibility. Yeah. Science teacher, oh my God, I would love to engage students with this content in the classroom. How can we work with you to put it in the classroom? How can we do that, right? So then the database is there, right? Um, so it can go multiple directions. We're not trying to control it. We're trying to make sure that the foundation is there for all these possibilities, right? Uh, if you want to showcase in a museum, yeah. <laughs> we, we have approached some museums to say, hey, could you showcase these stories in some visual way? Mm -hmm. You know, a few, very few people doing that, right? And yeah, we just have to find someone who bites yeah, and exactly. does it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, I'm excited. I, I don't know what the project, like, you know, like the impact question, I get this a lot. Uh, my <coughs> wife is, you know, she's one of the board of trustees in our organization. She's really tough um, and <laughs> asks me all the times, so, you know, how is this, what is the impact of what right. you're trying to do? And I think that's a question that I keep asking myself a lot. I give myself a break a lot, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know yet fully how to measure the impact. Um, I can do outputs, having people visit the website and so forth. But as more people start integrating stories and science into, into what they're doing, yeah. Yeah. we're seeing universities that are posting it on their website as a resource for graduate students and students overall. I think that's where you slowly over time begin to then, we can do these more tests and see how is it actually impacting the field. Right. Let's just do a study somehow and find out. That's cool. Yeah. Do, you, do you think you could, I, know, I just thought of this, could you work with the government and maybe have all the public school teachers or at least one from every school submit a story a year or a story every a great month idea. Or yeah no that's a great idea That'd yeah be awesome. we do have a couple science teachers we do, yeah. on the on the site um, who are former phds <coughs> not the uh, science teachers yeah. um yeah i think that would oh, be actually kind of awesome, awesome there is a search feature i should say on the on the site <coughs> as jessica mentioned earlier i want the story from antarctica <laughs> But let's say I wanted a story, you know, a woman that talks about, you know, mental health issues or struggles in and then in Africa uh, and, and, and now <coughs> is, is no longer in science, let's say. You can do the selections uh, of the categories that's and neat. boom, one, two stories. So it's an exclusion matrix where you will get the story that you want versus add-on, right? Adding mm -hmm. add additive uh, form. So the search feature, we spend a lot of time building and we're looking to advance it 
So, did you do the coding and all that for it? I did a lot of the building of bringing pieces together, I say. <laughs> it's a lot of, you know, it's a funny thing about that is you're leveraging a lot of what is already exists. And this is where I, I think now I see the, I try to advise students that a lot of things you want to build, pieces are all there. They're all there, just not in the form that you want and need, yeah. right? <clears throat> so the site has been really a growth from bringing pieces, expertise, involving other people who would say, okay, hey, I'll do this piece for you. I'll put this piece together. I've learned a lot about web design. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I never went to school for it, but now <laughs> I'm like, I think I have a sense or two of like what works and what does not work. Mm -hmm. um, and you just learn on the way. Necessity is the mother of all invention, you know? So I just, you just figure it out. That's cool. Um, what kind of other projects do you, are you guys working on right now? Um, yeah. Do you have a favorite one too? I think we had we had a recent project that I'll talk about two recent, more relatively recent projects, and then some stuff that we're working on now. We do a lot of writing, and this is sort of like um, analysis writing and advocacy writing. Um, we had a piece, you know, a couple years ago now on mental health in graduate students. Yeah. Um, and really looking at you know people talk a lot about mental health amongst graduate students in STEM or STEM technology, you know, engineering and mathematics, um, and what that looks like um, and how it's very appalling and how we need to do something about it. And so we were sort of curious, like everyone's talking about it. Very few people are doing anything. What is the actual data on mental health? And so we had done a lot of research looking at just primary, basically literature search data, seeing if there's any true data showing sort of rates of depression, rates of anxiety amongst graduate students, whether that be in the United States and, um, you know, abroad. And so one, it turns out there's very little data. Probably one of the, um, I would say the biggest and best study is out of UC Berkeley, where they um, sort of surveyed thousands and thousands of students. There's like a small study in China amongst, I think, Chinese graduate students, just a number of them. But basically there was very minimal data, but the data that did exist showed extremely high rates of depression, high rates of suicidality compared to the general population, extremely high rates of anxiety, mostly relating to all these different factors, including relationship to your mentor, um, success of your project, even family relationships, home relationships, financial issues, so all of these things. And so we had written this, I think, nice piece that sort of summarized all of this and said, we really need to revamp the way we understand mental health in science. And that starts from, you know, like individual level, the advisor level, up to the NIH and trying to revamp the structure by which, you know, funding is provided. All of these things are contributing. And so I think um, really calling for more data. Um, kind of other, you know, one of the writing projects that I've been working on is trying to understand blind peer review in publications. So most publications, they're not um, blind. They can see, like, if Faneuil submits a paper and I'm the reviewer, I can see that he wrote it. If I like him, that's great, right? Great review, great paper, love it. You know, I'm oversimplifying this a lot. But if I don't really like him, I might be kind of hard on him, and I may re just reject the paper. So I think um, I've been doing a lot of research into 
you know, what is it? Some, some, so some journals are starting to do blind peer review where now I can't see. All I can see is the data in front of me and I can judge it for what it is. Um, and I can't see Faneuil's name on it. So the question is, does that really make a difference? Uh, does that mean people from low resource settings are more likely to publish? Does that mean people um, are less likely to look at names, basically? And it looks like just from the preliminary like research that I've done and reading is that it does make a difference. So the question is, how do you, if it does make a difference, how do you really make that leap from the current system by which most journals are not blind peer reviewed? They some have started giving you the option now to doing blind peer review because it seems to have all of these different benefits. So that's sort of like some of the projects that we like to think about on, we like to do our research and understand all the primary data and then how does that translate into actually making changes to the current system that people know and complain about all the time are issues. So those are just some examples. We have and, lots of and, other projects. And just, just to remind you that we, you know, that this is our night job, right? Right. We do other stuff too. Day job, we are thinking about, uh, and the overlap, there's a big overlap, but that's what, that's you know, about, yeah, it's, it's really a balancing act. And so if uh, people are wondering, like, how do you do it all? You sort of try your best. And, you know, I'm up late, of course, uh, working, whether it's sites that are blowing up and I need to fix them to, to just emailing people to write <laughs> stories. <laughs> yeah, like send, find the right person, say, you have a good story to write. Please write something. So all these things matter. One project that I just want to tell you, we, we, I'm working right now on, on a new book um, now, so called Questions in Science, you know, nothing, not too innovative there. <laughs> um, but the, I think I've, been, I've always been very fascinated with questions in science and how they structure the temporal dimensions, spatial dimensions, hierarchical dimensions. You know, and and just in my own department right now at Harvard, I, I get this fun review of all the different questions people are asking. And I, after a while, I realized, my God, there's actually something fundamental that we can look at in all these questions and how mm. people are framing them. The questions, right? I don't really care about the answer. The do, you, do you think that's specific to science? Yeah, yeah. So this is science-related okay. questions, right? Because my my own interest, mm -hmm. you know, and I, and I really listen when I go to talk. I listen carefully at how they're asking a question. So this is the academic piece of SAI that that I that I do, because people can work on independent projects, you know, really as long as it kind of fits in the access realm and so forth. But so now I've sort of begin to compile them so I can look at and see how they structure different fields, you know, what are the similarities, what are the differences, you know, what are undergraduates asking that's different to like postdocs, you know, which is uh, I find very fascinating. And another one, just so that I can give you kind of a heads up, and this is something fresh, we really are, I'm not afraid to share with it, all of you yet, but it's, a, it's an online uh, platform that we're building actually um, in collaboration with uh, some people here at Brandeis, actually. Really? Uh, yeah, it's a new tool. I won't share the name yet, but the idea there is just really thinking about science outreach in, in new ways and revamping it, because um, right now, science outreach, and this is basically faculty, uh, people in science who are going out doing research, is not as well integrated into the curriculum. In fact, it's something that you do on the side, right? Just you do it, you do it over there. <laughs> Organizations like the NSF, National Science Foundation, has really made strides, right, the, the broader impact section to really include and drive more people to do science outreach. So we're trying to sort of map them and creating a platform for that. And so that will be coming out very soon, actually. I'm really excited for that. Awesome. And so we are advising the group here at Brandeis. And so 
gives us a chance to do the, a lot of advising, which is great because really cool. we get to yeah. see a lot of the front row view. There's yeah, a what's couple going on? We've like, remember we had that video game idea? Yeah, we the game of science, right? That we were working <laughs> on. So that's a different video that's game. That's in we're process. Video game makers, which is super cool. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then I don't know if you want to talk about SciReach. Yeah, it is. SciReach. Yeah. Um, that yeah. someone in our group named Ben has been working on. Yeah, Ben Marcus. Um, so he's in Chicago. So our people are all, all over the place, too. And again, all volunteers. That's amazing. Just yeah, all for the love of science. <laughs> They're just passionate so about cool. it, and you know, it's, it's great. Um, so, a few last questions before we head out. Um, what are some challenges that you guys face? I and I know that you've kind of mentioned a lot of um, getting the people who you want to write the stories to actually send it in and finding those people. But is that the main challenge, or are there other ones too? I think it's hard. You know, we recently became a formal 501c3. Yay. And <laughs> it's really hard to, before that, and, you know, even now, I think it's hard to get grant, grant money. Right. Funding. And, you know, we, like we said earlier, both have normal people jobs uh, <laughs> during the day and work a lot. And so, you know, if we were able to pay people to sort of be even part-time or full-time, you know, that would be awesome yeah. because right now we yeah. run as a purely volunteer organization and we have sort of a core group of people that does a really significant amount of work. Um, so I think certainly that is always a challenge and is a challenge for any group. Um, but I don't know. I think part of it is also there's like so much stuff we want to do, but we yeah we, we just, yeah, we're just the capacity right capacity. It's <laughs> not many of us, and you don't have time. Time is the biggest element here that we want to yeah. keep check on, and you can't do everything. So. Right. Um, you're, you're pressed on that and uh, just, yeah, balancing act <laughs> to make sure you're, are you asking the right problems, you know, uh, the right questions, finding the right questions yeah. as well, because so, you have limited amount of time, you have to invest in the right problems and finding people that are passionate. I usually, I'm finding a lot of the time, we're just trying to find people like, oh, you don't know, you, you have something cool here. Yeah, something. That's why I love Twitter because I I see people doing lots of cool things. I'm like, oh my god, you you should join us <laughs> because this is you what you could do. You don't you don't realize what you're actually doing. Yeah. Let me tell you, and and there's so much, and I just you know I don't have enough time. I I wish I had more time, but I don't. I gotta sleep, you know. As yeah. Well, so I was gonna ask how many hours you get a night. Not enough. Yeah, big problem there. I think the other big challenge too is like. You have to be not afraid to, we're rocking the boat a little bit. Once in a while, right? We're yeah. like trying to push things and change the status quo. And I think you just have to be okay with that. Yeah. And it's not always like the most pleasant because things are the way they are for a long time. Um, but I think being okay with just kind of pushing things a yeah, little over the edge and, and making people say, is this really how we should be doing things? Is this really how this should be? <coughs> and you know, encouraging change because I think people are generally resistant to change. Yeah, network, because a lot of our papers, if you were to read them, um, we spend a lot of time looking at networks, building new ways of thinking, modes of thinking, um, and so we like to draw little bubbles and connections between <laughs> diagrams. bubbles. Diagrams. Yeah, diagrams, that's, because networks is where I see it, and as I told you earlier, once you have a network diagram, you can get to see where, filling it in. you know, where you're filling it in, number one, and also start pressing buttons, like see, hey, this, what happens when we accelerate this one? Can, can we move this lever over like here? How do you perturb the system and what yeah, changes what when moves, you do that? Uh, and I think a lot of time people don't even know what the network is. Yeah. Right? So 
we draw it out and some people don't like it because then they get to see all the elements like oh like <laughs> right right and so for all of the pieces that we published uh, nature biotech it's just networks that are there and now people get to see like oh mm. we should like do something here because mm. <laughs> i see the yeah. map now right that's neat um so before we get into the last question is there one last thing you guys want to talk about um anything specific I think, you know, just people who are interested in our organization, what we do, you want to contribute a story, you know, just e you know, find us on Twitter. You can email us, uh, scholarship at stemadvocacy.org. Um, and, you know, just just contact us, you know. We are on our website, stemadvocacy.org. Um, yeah, and storiesandscience.org, it's really simple. <laughs> and if people want to be, like, participate or have ideas for projects that they want to work yeah, on, we're, always, yeah. we're, like, more than happy to mentor yeah. people. Um, it's really, really like from us we are like more than happy to help people it's more like from other people whether they want to participate <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did they, yeah do they do they have ideas that we can just help them along and we've the helped way. people write their own papers yeah. and publish even, even in nature and like yeah. all sorts of cool stuff so yeah so have you guys tried broadcasting and um, marketing to all the different schools in the area and kind of saying like we're a resource or do you not want to get stories from I mean I guess you wouldn't, you wouldn't get you weren't you wouldn't really want to get this the stories from the undergrads, but maybe from the Oh no, no, oh, we, no. We, oh, we, yeah, we yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Because I mean, a lot of them do we research, have right? Canvassed as much yeah. As we could. So yeah. on on the side there's a whole section of undergraduate and okay. they, they, there's the stories yeah, no, in Because they do stories. research, they think it's the stories matter because right. you can do a horizontal you know, mentoring there also. Yeah. So so yeah. But we've tried that. It's it's hard again, time, time, time. You know, email you gotta email people and so it's hard yeah. to to find the time no, it's always the hardest part midterms yeah finals coming. yeah it's always yeah. midterm season yeah and it's finals it's always midterm it's always midterm um, especially in science i know my friends it's yeah good for them. um yeah lastly um what is a fun fact about yourself that oh no one knows about you man no one no one knows wow Less than five people know. Okay, I'll, okay, I'll, I like uh, that. I like that. Um, I'll Jessica start. <laughs> <laughs> Not everyone knows this, but I'm. Well, you probably know this. No. But um, I'm like obsessed with coffee. And, like, <laughs> I think I know school, that. I think I, I know actually, that. So I like modified different variables in grad school where I had like temperature and I had like temperature <laughs> regulation, grind size of the bean. You know, dark roast, all you know, all different types of beans, pour time, you know, contact time with the water. So I've sort of like optimized this whole coffee setup. It's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> it's like the only thing I'm really snobby about is like the coffee. Coffee. <laughs> you know, and there's like so many things you can do to manipulate the flavor. And so anyhow, I'm obsessed with coffee. It's coffee, <laughs> coffee, coffee, yeah. My wife then, yeah. Why do you drink? <laughs> I don't drink coffee. Yeah, I don't actually. <laughs> uh, mine. This is, I think maybe one person that knows this, you know, it's my wife. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I love Star Trek, Star Trek to the point where it 